My name is Rob, if we haven't met, and I'm, I'm rather excited to be here today. And I hope you are too. As we get started today, I'd love to have you think about the words cancer survivor. Think about what those words mean and what they might mean to you. Cancer survivor. See, I picture someone who is wearing a yellow band that says live strong. I picture someone that has a pink ribbon on their shirt or their jacket. I picture hundreds of women walking 60 miles over three days. I picture endurance. I picture strength, bravery, confidence. This overcoming attitude, this picture of endurance, one who conquered the challenge of cancer. That's what I picture when I hear cancer survivor. Now, maybe you have a different picture. Is yours one of endurance? Is it one of blessing? Is it one that you would immediately associate with God's love, with his care, or with his compassion? See, some of us, when we go through hardships, there are people that are able to endure a hardship and tell this blessed story. And there are others that go through a hardship, and it seems like all they have to tell is a bitter story. Have you ever thought about why? Well, today, we're going to hear from Terry as our Storyteller series continues, who tells a pretty blessed story. And I want you to think about the words cancer survivor and blessed as she tells that story. We've been in this series called Storytellers for a couple weeks, and we've talked about this idea that we all have a story to tell. We all have a way, if we know Jesus, where God has met us personally, where he's confronted us, challenged us, changed us. A way that he's revealed some of who we are. So each week as we hear from someone's story, we also are looking at an attribute or a name of who God is. Because God is so complex, God is so personal, and he reveals himself in such profound ways that we need to continue to gaze at who God is. And so today we look at the name Shaddai, God Almighty. And we look at Terry's story and Cancer Survivor. Take a look. Growing up with my childhood, we had an awesome family, close family, knit. Um, parents are still married, 20 or 52 years almost, and... Um, Grandparents were very um, religious. Faith wasn't a big part of our life growing up, even though we had a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall, and even though we even went to church, that seemed to be where it ended. I carried this idea of faith into adulthood. Um, got married, had three awesome, beautiful daughters. I loved them very much. And we ended up with turmoil and, and issues in our marriage. We went to counseling four times, and after 23 years, we decided to end it. It was best for both of us. 
time passed and I never healed, really healed from my um, marriage and my divorce. And I got into another relationship and that ended up being dysfunctional also. Um, the gentleman ended up with a um, head injury which left him very angry and you never knew when it was going to um, basically get set off. You know, if you said something wrong or if you put something in the wrong spot, it would just make him um, get very angry and there was a lot of uh, verbal abuse and just not a healthy um, relationship. It was after this relationship when I surrendered to God and I just wanted to learn more about him and what everybody was talking about. He seemed amazing and I couldn't wait to find out. So I joined Bible studies and talked to a lot of Christian women and I was accepted into um, the church that I was going to or that I had found at this time and they were so awesome that I felt right at home and I couldn't wait to learn more. A few years have passed and now here I am diagnosed with cancer. And it couldn't help but take me back to when I was 15, my grandmother was diagnosed with liver cancer. And I was very angry at God at the time, not knowing who he really was, um, for taking her away from me because she ended up passing away of liver cancer. And so after I was diagnosed, that's the first thing I could think of is, okay, I know my faith, but why was it me now having to go through cancer? And the same thoughts went through my head now, was I going to die or was I going to be able to survive cancer? So now I had to tell my daughters and my family the diagnosis that I had just gotten. Um, so that evening I made sure each of my daughters had their significant other with them and I was upbeat and said it was curable and that you know mom was gonna be just fine. And then I had to call my mom. Well, because of my grandma's situation, my mom took it really hard and I stayed strong for her also and so we got through all that and then here came the day for the first day of chemo and um, the doctor told me of course you know I was gonna lose all my hair and that was traumatic to me but we started the chemo thing and two weeks later all my hair fell out and I started feeling very sick just didn't care um, had no energy and laying in bed and chemo went on I had to have five months of chemo and the middle way through it, I was so miserable. I ended up with shingles and I would pray every minute, you know, to God, please get me through one more minute or 10 more minutes. Or then the, finally the day was done and I was into the next day feeling a little better, but still wishing that why was it me? And I'd fall asleep and dream that being at home with my mom taking care of me and making her homemade chicken noodle soup and making me eat because I didn't want to. And, um, but that wasn't a possibility. I couldn't have the physical um, presence of my family during chemo because of where I was living. But I knew that God was still gonna get me through and I just kept praying to him, you know what, let's get this done with. I, I just can't do this anymore. At one point, I even felt like it was I was Job what Job had to go through, all the things that were put on him, but because of his faith, he could get through it. And I just kept thinking of that, if Job can make it through, so can I. But after that, 
I got a six-week break, and then I had to have surgery, and I had to decide <clears throat> what type of surgery I was going to do. Well, after going through all the um, um, choices that they had given me, I decided to do a double mastectomy because at that point, I was like, I am not going to go through this again. God got me through it the first time, and we're just not going to take a chance. So I went through my surgery fine, and again, I didn't have the physical family there to help me, but I had lots of family from um, church family, that of a church that I had uh, met, and the pastor was there. He was awesome. He actually thanked me after my surgery for letting him come through the journey with me because he was never allowed, I shouldn't say really allowed, but he'd always pray with the people when they were diagnosed and at the end, see him at the end, but nothing in the middle with the journey. And so I was so blessed also that he was there at the day of surgery, him and his wife, my daughter that could make it, and the doctors all prayed over me. And even the doctor let the pastor pray over his hands so that I knew I was going in, that everything was going to be great, and I was going to come out fine on the other end. After that, six weeks after healing, I had to do my radiation treatments, which was 25 treatments of radiation. And they told me it was going to be no big deal. You might be a little pink like you were out in the sun for a half hour, hour. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. So after a week and a half into this, I was so purple and blisters and hurting that I was ready to quit again, just like Job with the blisters he had to go through. And I told the nurse that day that was doing my radiation treatments, I said, I am done emotionally. I cannot handle anymore and physically, I am not gonna do this anymore. I was crying and said, I'm not coming back. She took me by the shoulders and kind of gave me a little shake and said, you haven't come this far to quit now. I only had 17 more treatments to go and I would be fine. So I finished my treatments and eventually my hair started growing back and then I had the healing time. So now after all the treatments were done, I got the results that I am now cancer free. And it was like the world was lifted off my shoulders. God was there through the whole thing. He got me through everything and there was praise, there was tears. I mean, I could not have done this without God being on my side. Two years have passed by now, and I am cancer-free, and my doctor said that I look and I, I just, everything is so amazing. She can't believe how well I look and my, how long my hair is, all that good stuff of going through everything I've gone through. And so she suggested that I become a pink ribbon mentor, and this is down at Mayo um, Clinic and Hospital. And so now my journey is to be able to go and sit with women that are being diagnosed with uh, breast cancer and that are going through chemo. I get to sit with them while they're going through this, hold their hand, encourage them saying, it is, you know, it's gonna get better. You'll uh, come out stronger and um, some of the women wanna pray with me and I am just so blessed now that he has used my journey to now impact other women's lives. Thanks, Terry. You can talk to Terry. She's here today if you have questions about her story. It is a good story. It's a hard story. It is a story of endurance. 
But for every story of endurance and cancer, there's a story of tragedy. There's a story of suffering. And like I asked before, or when we started, what do you think of, and why is it that some people can make it through suffering and have a blessed story, and others endure something and come out with a bitter story to tell? I think the answer is found in the scriptures, but to, before we go there, we just have to look at this, this world we live in, and what a weird, broken place it is. I was in Phoenix last week, or, yeah, and, and Phoenix is the retirement haven of the world, by the way. It's amazing. Um, there's sunshine, and one of the biggest hardships seems to be when the men's tea times get bumped from the morning to the afternoon. Like, the world stops. And so that happened a couple times, and then the other big hardship is when you go to the retirement center pool, and there's all the grandkids that are on spring break, and they want to use the pool between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. But by golly, when 3 p.m. comes, get them out of there, because we want our pool time. And so there's just this sense of these are the hardest things they go through, and yet we turn on the news at night and just blocks away. There are robberies. There are murders. There are um, insanely more crazy things happening. And, and we shut off the news and go, wow, this maybe isn't a little slice of heaven as we thought. Our world is broken. That's why we started this church. It doesn't matter if it's Arizona or Washington or the suburbs or St. Paul. If you have a conversation with someone, you will hear pain and you will hear suffering. It's just a matter of what kind. And what do we say in the process? And what do we look at in the process? And so we come to the scriptures because the reality is that that suffering happens, that hardships happen, that we are insulted or rejected, or we face opposition or we go through health crises in our own personal lives or our family's lives that really make us doubt God's care. They make us doubt God's power. And they make us doubt God's presence. And so we ask questions like, well, does God love my friend? Or does he love my friend's family member? Or does he love my family member that's sick, that's not getting better? And we're asking in that question, is God still when we're in situations like this, I think we ask if God has the ability to do something, if he can change this situation, even if it's an impossible situation. And the question we seem to be asking is, is God powerful? Or we ask questions when we're in the midst of suffering that say things like, does God even know about this? Is he aware of this? Is he close enough to understand how I feel or understand how much I'm hurting or how much my friend's hurting? And in that question, I think we're asking, is God personal? And these are all very appropriate. They're very good questions. They're the right questions. But I think they stem from the most enduring, most timeless question of all. And that is, why do innocent people suffer? It's, it's an okay question to ask, by the way. If you're in a situation where you're suffering or where you're hurting and you don't ask why, you're an anomaly. 
most of us ask why. In fact, that the scriptures devote a 42-chapter discourse called the book of Job. Job, if you're not listening. Um, in the Bible, where it talks about why. Why do the innocent suffer? And so it's an appropriate question to ask. And in the book of Job, we see catastrophe strike him, strike his family, strike his health, wreck his home, wreck his finances. He sits there in this huge place of suffering, and his friends come to visit him, and they see so much suffering that all they do is sit there for a week, seven days and seven nights, and don't say a word. Because sometimes suffering has no words to share. Some of us have been in situations where, where we need to take just that simple example right there from Job 2, where his friends sit with him for a week because the suffering is too great for words and just be present with them. Did you hear Terry's story? Did you hear when she said the hardest part was that no one was there? No one was with me. Just simply sitting with someone is sometimes the most powerful, profound way we can bring Christ to people. But eventually, like Job's friends, someone is going to ask why. Why do the innocent suffer? Now, the the reason that God can handle why is because God's a big God. The temptation and problem with why is that we run to simple answers. Job's friends did it for 30 chapters. They went, well, you must have done something wrong because, see, they believe this principle that's a pretty universal principle of cause and effect, that if you're wicked or you do something wrong, you pay the consequences. And the general principle is the righteous succeed or prosper and the wicked suffer. This principle actually doesn't just run through the Bible. It really runs through the universe, by and large, mostly. This cause and effect principle that if you do the right things, you end up in a successful place. If you do the wrong things, you usually end up suffering. And for 30 chapters, Job and his friends go back and forth on this. It's a great book. You should read it. But you get to the end, and what Job finally finally realizes in his frustration of these conversations with his friends is shown in uh, Job 31, 35. He finally pretty much just ignores his friends because they keep saying that you must have done something wrong, Job. And he says, oh, I wish someone would hear me. I now sign off on my defense. Let God Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. I'm, I'm done, is basically what Job is saying. Now, he had three, actually four friends sitting there, and yet at that moment, no one was actually hearing what he was saying. They were there. They might have been looking at him. They might have sort of been listening, but nobody heard him. And he directs his attention to God Almighty. And at the end of the book, we don't get an answer to why. That's why I don't think it's the best question. Why often leads us to a bitter story. 
not a blessed story. And at the end of the book, we don't get why. What we get is the almighty God is too powerful, too majestic, and too mysterious to be reduced to a principle. Whether that principle is cause and effect or the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. We don't get easy answers, and I am so glad for that. I don't want a God that I can reduce to a simple principle because then it's not God anymore. Now we get a God who's majestic. We get a God who's mighty. We get a God who is as big as a mountain. And that's actually what this word almighty, God almighty, this, this Hebrew word Shaddai means. Means simply the mountain one or the mighty one. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But Two out of every three times that this word Shaddai or this name of God is used, it's used in the book of Job. In the book that centers on the question of why do we suffer? Why do the innocent suffer? I I find that pretty profound that over two-thirds of the time, the time that this name of God is revealed is revealed in a book of suffering. But again, I don't think the best question is why. I think the better question is where. Where are we looking in the midst of our suffering? And to do that, we actually go from Job, which is kind of a mysterious book, to another mysterious book in the New Testament. It's the book of Hebrews. It's almost at the end of your Bible, so if you want to turn there, if you have one of our... um, Bibles that we give out, it's 976. And in the book of Hebrews, this writer that's never identified is trying to identify with these Christians who are suffering in huge ways. They, uh, they've, they've understood who Christ is, or they think they have, but now they're suffering, and so they're starting to ask why. And instead of answering the why question, this writer goes to where? Where are you looking in the midst of your suffering? And he gives us two fixes, two fixes from the scriptures that I think we need to look at if we're going to be able to endure suffering to a point where we can tell a blessed story. We're going to pick it up in Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set out for us. We do this by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy set before him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor, in the right hand beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. And then you won't become weary or give up. After all, you have not given your lives and your struggle against sin to the point of shedding blood or to the point of giving your life. This writer is saying timeless words again. Words that don't just speak to someone 2,000 years ago. I think they speak to us today too. See, the first fix, if we're going to endure this hardship and tell a blessed story, is to fix our eyes on Jesus' faithfulness. 
the story tells us. Not just on Jesus, which is great, but on Jesus' faithfulness. It says the, the initiator or the author and perfecter of our faith. See, when Terry went through her challenges, she said, I had, my parents had a great marriage. They still have a great marriage. We went to church. We had this faith, and we had a picture of Jesus on the wall. But for Terry, that was where her faith ended. That Jesus was a picture on the wall. God on the wall. I think some of us come from situations or families or stories where God has been a picture on the wall. Something we can sort of see that we can't really understand. And if we go to church, sometimes we have the um, actually unfortunate or potentially unfortunate picture of God being mysterious, powerful, and really big. Actually, Shaddai, this mighty Savior God, Mountain One, is a good picture of some of the, some of what we grew up with. Especially if we grew up in a more orthodox church or a church that we didn't quite understand. God is powerful and mysterious like a mountain. We can't quite get our eyes around it. We stare at up at an awe. It evokes this fear that invokes this reverence, this power. And yet, when we fear something, we often don't approach it. When we are afraid or don't understand, we don't often ask for help. I this chemistry professor my freshman year of college. I was a pretty good student in high school, and I was a pretty good student in college, except chemistry was the bane of my existence. I was never going to pass this chemistry uh, class. Paul Molitor was my teacher, I just remember, because he was also a Twins fan, and literally said, um, you know, the answer to 25 is C in the instructions, and I thought he was kidding, so I didn't write it down. I couldn't even get the one that he gave us in the instructions on the test. And and this man was either just so brilliant or just so clueless that I was so afraid to approach him that I went and let myself get a 44% on the first test and a 24% on the second test. And I'm going into the third test, and then it's just the final. And that's the only grades for this whole test. And I've never failed a class in my life. I've actually, I I hadn't gotten... well, anyway, I'd, I'd been a pretty good student, so th- I had no idea what to do. The fear of how unapproachable he was kept me from asking for help. This Shaddai experience or picture of God, this powerful picture of God, is good in the sense that God is not reduced to a principle. I'm thankful for that. It's bad in the sense of that God evokes such awe or such reverence that all we can think about is that we're afraid to approach him. And when we're afraid to approach him, we don't ask for help. And the writer of Hebrews knows that these people are in this situation, knows they need something better, and so he says to them, I want you to think about two mountains. Why mountains? Because oftentimes when we're struggling and when we're going through the desert experiences or the hardship experiences, a desert is actually a very fitting description of that. 
in the scriptures, this ties with them. Anytime that people go through a desert, they go through a time of trial, a time of temptation, or a time of testing or suffering. In the desert, you often don't know your directions because everything is brown or light tannish. And, and so you need some mountains, some very high landmarks to see, see your directions. Mount Sinai was on the edge of a desert. God's people were rescued from slavery, went through a desert, and ended up at Mount Sinai. And that's exactly where the writer takes us. In verse 18, he says, you have not come to a physical mountain. And then he uses some strange language. A flaming fire. Darkness. Gloom. A whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai, for they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible they begged for God to stop speaking. They staggered back at God's command. If an animal touches the mountain, it will be stoned to death. God, Moses himself was so frightened at the sight, he said, I am terrified and I'm trembling. See, all of these words of flaming fire, whirlwind, gloom, darkness, Trumpet blasts, shouting, these are all words that are used to describe the presence of God. Go back to Exodus 19, and you can read the very same phrases. This is, Exodus 19 is the story of where Moses goes with the people to Mount Sinai, and a cloud comes over the mountain, and God's presence is there, and the people are terrified. We learn from this mountain that God is powerful, but unapproachable. And so he says, this is a good mountain in one sense, but in the other sense, it's not. It's just a mountain that symbolizes religion. Don't do this. Don't come here. I'm going to give you these commands and you're going to keep my law. I did this for you. You need to do this for me. Yes, it was founded on grace. Before God gave the law, he said, I am the Lord who brought you from slavery. It was on grace, but it was conditional. And religion feels conditional. When you're suffering and you're not sure you can endure, you often wonder, do I have enough strength? Am I strong enough? Do I have enough faith? Will I make it? And when we come under religion or come to the mountain of religion, that's what we think. I've got to get up there. I've got to scale that. We went on a hike when we, were, when we were away for a few days, and my mom has had some heart problems, and so this was going to be a little bit of a challenge for her. And I said, Mom, we don't have to do it. And she's like, no, 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 I want to. And, and the truth was she just didn't want to have her leave us at the bottom. Or she didn't want to be left at the bottom. She wanted to spend that time with her grandkids and her family. But the mountain of religion says, I have to do this. And maybe that's been your story in suffering. Except it leads us to despair and it leads us to fear. And so the writer of Hebrews says, actually, don't look at that mountain anymore. Look at this mountain. He continues and he says in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the countless thousands of angels in the heavenly gathering. You've come to this place and the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. 
you have come to God himself. Not a dead God, not a God of idols, not a God of religion, the living God who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who've now been made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and his people and to the sprinkled blood who speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Big phrases. Um, Zion was not just Jerusalem or a mountain. It was this futuristic spiritual reality of where God and his people would be one, where the heaven and the earth would be one, and where, where goodness, joy, faithfulness, righteousness, perfection, it looks like, forgiveness, all of these things would be present. Now you tell me, would you rather do something out of fear or out of desire? See, when we're not sure if we're going to endure and we want a better story to tell, the blessed story to tell, the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on the faithfulness of Jesus who gives us a new covenant, not the covenant of religion, not Sinai, but to the covenant of grace, to the mountain of grace, the one who is encapsulated and shown in Jesus. This is the one who fulfills the old covenant and gives us the new covenant. This is the one that that says it's Zion, that you are assembled with God, that you are made right, not by our faith, but by Jesus' faithfulness. And when we accept that, we are showing him our trust. We are using our faith. But we never have to say, is it enough? Because Jesus was enough. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus' faithfulness. The second fix is this fixing our mind on Jesus' endurance of the cross. The writer of Hebrews says in in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding or scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, fix your mind on him. Think about him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you and I will not grow weary and lose heart. See, the cross was the ultimate cause and effect principle in effect in the day. This, if it, the idea was if you crossed Rome, you died. If you crossed Rome, you suffered harm. And Jesus suffered such extreme suffering, shame, and opposition on the cross. It was the most painful, the most public, and therefore shameful way someone could be executed for their crimes. And it wasn't just. Jesus didn't go through a fair trial. Jesus was innocent, and he was killed anyway. And I I think simply this shows the injustice of the world, which goes back to where we started, that the world is a broken place. Not only that, but we talked about Job. Job was innocent. And yet Job suffered. And he shows the injustice of a community of people And then there's this curious line at the end about Abel and Abel's blood crying out. 
Well, Abel was the first, the second son of the first couple, Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel were brothers, and we have the first sibling rivalry, and Cain kills Abel, murders him. And now we have the injustice and the judgment that's crying out from a home. I don't know exactly what each of you are enduring. I know some of the stories. I know some of you are going through health problems. Some of you have family who are going through health problems. Others of you just don't know if the finances are going to meet. Some are looking for jobs. And the hardships continue. But whatever it is, whether it's a suffering from the world or a suffering from the community or a suffering from your own home, God is this God called Shaddai, the God of the impossible, the God that gets someone through 25 treatments of chemo radiation when they're like, only 17 more to go. I just would have slapped that nurse. God not only has the desire, which we see in Jesus' faithfulness, to bring us through, he has the power, which we see in the cross. Jesus endured the cross, so he shed his blood, and his blood speaks of something better than Abel's blood. Abel's blood cried out for justice. It cried out for judgment. Jesus' blood gives us forgiveness, gives us acceptance what restoration is all about no matter what you've done or where you've been or what you're going through jesus blood is shed for you and he offers you forgiveness and he offers you acceptance and all each of us have to do is receive it which mountain are you looking at in your suffering because where you're looking determines much of if you'll make it through your suffering and if you'll tell the blessed story not just the bitter story I'm not trying to minimize suffering. And I think through the scriptures, God never minimizes our suffering. But these stories that we look at today and from Hebrews tell us that God is good. That he has the power and he is present in our suffering. Receive that today. Tell the blessed story. Tell the story of the God who can't be reduced to a principle, a God who can't be just minimized into religion, a God who fills the world with his grace, who unites us with the righteous people of old, with the angels, and the chorus of joy that comes, the goodness of God and the presence of Jesus, the one who conquered. Let us fix our eyes on that, on Jesus' faithfulness, on his endurance of the cross, and on the reality that God is majestic, good, and powerful enough to do the impossible. And he doesn't just want to be a picture on a wall or a page in a book. God wants to be the impossible God in each of our lives. So if it's not suffering, what's your impossible situation? Because God wants to meet you in it. To reveal himself bigger than he's ever revealed himself. As the band comes up and we pray, I just would like you to consider that.
challenge and suffering in Terry's life drove her to look at who God is, that's when some of us really look to God is when we're suffering. Jesus went through suffering. God's people of righteous of old went through suffering. We'll probably go through suffering. But in those moments, they evoke our fears and they can evoke our faith. So what are your fears today? Where do you doubt that God might help you? And what kind of faith do you need today? Ask him for it.